Church, let's pray as we continue. Father, we pray that you would guide us. Oh, great Jehovah, Lord, as we now turn to your word, we ask that you be our guide. Holy Spirit, that you would take the words that you have laced on my heart, Father, and guide them to the needs that we have as your church. Father, would you remind us of your great salvation. Father, would you take our troubles, the concerns that we may have, the uncertainties for this coming day even, this week, God, and would you set them to the side and allow us to see in light of your fullness, your glory and grace, how there is nothing that we need fear. Father, re reorient our eyes, we pray, and our hearts during this time that ensues. God, may you be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Judges chapter 6? And as you do, just as a, a way of excuse, uh, those references to your pastor as amazing uh, were mere hyperbole for the purpose of explanation in the children's message. But this morning, we continue with our examination of Israel's fifth judge, the mighty wheat-threshing warrior from the smallest family of the smallest clan, Gideon, the son of Joash, the Abizrite. And last week, if you were with us, we once again noted God's judgment of Israel's sin, a practice that's become quite predictable as it marks our author's first stage in his paradigm for salvation. And we then noted God's reminder, which surprised us, because to this point, the second stage has always consisted of Israel crying out and then Yahweh providing a deliverer, which he does too here. However, before Gideon gets the call, God sends his people a prophet who reminds them of his grace, of the covenant's expectations, and of their complete failure to fulfill their part of the deal. God reminds Israel why they're suffering. He then summons their savior, Gideon, the most unlikely of deliverers, and pledges to be with him throughout the process, at which point, as we saw, Gideon freaks out because he finally realizes exactly who he's dealing with and all that has been expected of him as God demands exclusive loyalty, demonstrated by his order that Gideon destroy all the idols that his father has housed on his property. And that was where we stopped, concluding that God's salvation is so great because he will not, indeed he cannot, share his glory with another. God's salvation is exclusive, church. It isn't simply one of many spiritual charms that we can wear on our bracelets in hopes of guaranteeing ourselves safety unto eternity. You can't worship God and. There's, there's no and with Yahweh's salvation. There's only Yahweh. As Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So church, Jesus is the only way that we may be made right with God and have life. Yahweh's salvation is exclusive. And this was the lesson Gideon learned as he snuck into his dad's backyard to trash his bell altar and chop down his Asherah pole in the dark. It was an action that, as you can only imagine, was not well received by the rest of the fam. However, Gideon is given a reprieve as his father recognizes, possibly for the first time ever, that the true God should need human aid defending himself. And so rather than stoning his son, he submits him to Baal's judgment. He gives him the name Jerub Baal, which basically meant let Baal contend with him. I'm done with dealing with this son of mine. And at this point, it appears from our text that life returns to normal 
in the Jezreel Valley. Gideon gets back to threshing wheat, possibly even in the same hole, later to planting as presumably the seasons change. Life just continues as it has for the past seven years, which means that no sooner have the fields begun to show signs of growth and who should appear but those locust-like Midianites. So this is where we're going to pick up the story this morning. So if you would, follow along. I'm going to read from Judges 6, beginning with verse 33. Judges 6, verse 33. Now, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Bezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to come to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. And let's pause there for a moment. Let's consider our first point for this morning, which is God empowers Gideon. God empowered Gideon with the Midianites and their allies encamped in northern Israel. Gideon blows the trumpet, summoning his brothers to battle. Now, in the Old Testament, I'm sure as many of you know, the sounding of the shofar or the ram's horn served as Israel's call to arms. And so, in Gideon's action here, there's nothing surprising. And we saw this same practice back in chapter 3 when we examined the story of Ehud, who following his flight from Eglon's palace in Moab, we're told, chapter 3, verse 27, blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. So, the trumpet was Israel's summons to war. And as Gideon sounds it first, he does so for the rest of his own tribe, that's Manasseh, and then to Manasseh's northern neighbors, Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, those tribes that would have also been reeling from the presence of Midian in their midst. None of this is surprising. However, it does raise an extremely important question, namely, why are Gideon's relatives and fellow Israelites so ready to respond? What's changed? Do they now recognize him as a valiant warrior like the Lord's angel described him? Or, or is it because of his freshly displayed leadership qualities following his Baal altar bashing? Church, I, I believe the answer is no and no. Going just off his, Gideon's self-assessment, which we saw last week, coupled with the trepidation he displayed as he destroyed Baal's altar in the night. Gideon is not the guy whose lips you want to find attached to the trumpet when you arrive at the battle scene. He isn't a hero. Demands a zero. And, and we'll see in the succeeding narrative exactly how things haven't changed. And yet, the Abizrites along with the tribes of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, all answer his call. Why? And I believe the answer is tied to that expression, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The verb here rendered come upon is one that can also be translated as to clothe, as in the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And so, so just as we saw with Ehud, I believe now we see it with Gideon. God's Spirit covered the Deliverer's weaknesses, empowering him for divine purposes. In other words, the people weren't attracted to Gideon because of his ability. They weren't awed by his great physical strength or inspired by his personal courage. What God did was to clothe a weak instrument with his power. He filled a broken vessel with his spirit. And so just as we're going to see later when we come to Judges 10 with Jephthah, and then later with Saul, the spirit, the same spirit who came upon Gideon, then compelled those who heard the trumpet's blast to respond. 
friends, the, the beautiful gospel truth that I believe is captured here reveals how God, once again, God is the one who saves. It's He who raises up the deliverer. And then it's He who draws men and women to follow this Savior. It's a truth that I think we see perfectly clear in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 32, where Jesus, explaining as that His time on earth was drawing to an end, declares to His disciples, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw men and women to Myself. In Christ's lifting up there, figuratively referencing his crucifixion. Jesus bore our sin. He suffered and he died. God raised up a deliverer who, though a king, came as a commoner. Though a warrior rode on a colt. Though the creator submitted himself to his creation. No one rallied to this Savior's summons the first time around, did they? We're told that he came to his own and his own rejected him. However, the God who so loved the world that he graciously gave his only son is the same God who graciously saves by grace through faith those who believe in his only son. In Christ's words, recorded also in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Have you felt God's drawing to himself? Conviction of sin? Desire to know if this, this God that I hear proclaimed from the scriptures is in fact real? Have you felt God's drawing? And have you responded? God empowered Gideon for the task that was before him. But Gideon hesitated, as revealed verse 36, where our text continues. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So we pointed out how God empowered Gideon. Here I believe we see how God assured Gideon. God assured Gideon. Now, I would imagine that we're all familiar with this portion of Gideon's tale. For those who've grown up in church, these fleece tests, so-called, are regularly referenced in our American church by Christians keen to know God's will. I wouldn't be surprised if you were to Google Gideon's fleece that you couldn't possibly buy a Gideon's fleece online, as desperate as our culture is to know the future. And this shouldn't come as a shock. I mean, honestly, as believers, we ought to deny, desire to know and to follow the Lord and to do that which he would have us do. But somehow, at times, the decisions that we face come without corresponding biblical references, don't they? Meaning, as you're praying fervently about career plans or, or as you face relationship decisions, you're not going to find a verse that reads, for I know the plans I have for you, Andrew, and doesn't include medical school. Or, you know, Andrew, thou shalt take Melinda into thy house, and she shall be thy wife. You won't find those verses, because believe me, I looked some 20 years ago. I looked, and I couldn't find them, and I wouldn't doubt that some of you have sought those same answers from Scripture as I did. I've heard numerous men and women describe their process of determining God's plans as throwing out my fleece, 
You may, may have even referenced it in this way. I heard one just recently speak of deciding or determining God's will in this manner. Now, doubt that in their reference, their practice, like that of Gideon, actually involves a sheep's skin, but they share the same principle. Some form of test in which they select a predetermined outcome as representative of God's affirmation or denial, depending of whatever options are before them. Now, I'm not going to ask us to raise our hands, but I have a feeling that many of us have attempted to make life decisions in this way. And I, hear me, I don't believe that this is necessarily unbiblical as practice. However, I do believe that it's incorrectly associated with our deliver in this story. Here's why. Is Gideon facing an unknown? Meaning, is the choice before our man veiled such that he needs God to provide clarity? And the answer is absolutely not. God has made his will abundantly clear. And we saw this last week, twice, in the words of the angel recorded in verse 14 and in verse 16, respectively. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? And then again, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So God's will is pretty clear, isn't it? Gideon isn't facing an unknown, and therefore his behavior here has nothing to do with determining or discovering God's will. Gideon's problem is, as one theologian notes, that with his limited experience with God, he can't believe that God will always fulfill his word. The request for signs here is, is not a sign of faith, but of unbelief. Despite being clear about the will of God, being empowered by the Spirit of God, and confirmed as the divinely chosen leader by the overwhelming response of his countrymen to his own summons to battle, Gideon uses every means available to try to get out of the mission to which he's been called. And Gideon's doubt, then, I think, is further revealed by our author's use of the term God there. Verse 36, you'll notice, rather than Lord, God translates the Hebrew term Elohim, which is a more general divine reference than is the covenantal name by which God revealed himself to Moses. Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps. And so what I believe our author is doing here, church, is not providing us with a model to follow when determining or desiring to know God's will for the future, but rather he's helping us to see the incredible grace of God as God assures Gideon, despite this man's continued doubts. So as one commentator observes, the remarkable fact here is that God responds to Gideon's tests. He's more anxious to deliver his people than to quibble with his deliverer's semi-pagan notions of deity. God assures Gideon. Church, how easy is it for us, like Gideon, to mask doubt with, with tests that we devise to supposedly determine God's will? The prophet Micah informed God's people in chapter 6 and verse 8, He has shown me what he desires and what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And Jesus, when asked a question with similar intent by a biblical scholar, no less, responded by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Church, as we face the future 
I know that there is much that we would like to know. But God has revealed what we need to know in his word. Do you know it? Do you read it? This is why we at Emmanuel strive to study it, to, to meditate upon it, to memorize it, to proclaim it. God's truth dispels doubt and it assures us of his grace. So God empowered Gideon. He assured Gideon, but then God humbled Gideon. So let's keep reading now from chapter 7 and verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So, 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300. He took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. It is interesting that we aren't given any indication as to Gideon's emotions following God's assurance. The man who has continued to be unfaithful to his own word, promising one test, then begging for another, and then another, has experienced God's lavish provision with a dry fleece and soggy ground. And then a fleece so wet that an entire bowl of water could be wrung out. Now, camped with his men at the spring of Herod, he seems primed for battle. Only, rather than receiving the word for the attack, for I have given the enemy into your hands, Gideon's informed he's got too many guys. Now, we might have anticipated a message saying, Midian's troops are far too many for me to deliver them into your hands. Now, that would have made sense to our natural minds, right? Which is why the message that Gideon receives is clearly supernatural. Rather than use many, God informs Gideon of his pending purge, and he gives them a very telling reason why. Pride. Yahweh knows his people's hearts, and, and he knows that as things stand, his hand would be overlooked. Worse, might be mistaken for Israel's as their own. And therefore, he initiates, God initiates this two-step process that allows those who are frightened to depart first before he further filters the men at the stream. And church, in God's reduction of Gideon's troops here, and then the reasoning behind it, I believe our author is directing us to see once again the glory of our God's great salvation. Because Yahweh does not need that which we equate with success. He doesn't need the numbers, the money, or the support because he's God. He could save his people with the word because as the psalmist sings in Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. The Lord doesn't need us or 
anything for that matter because he's God. If he did, he couldn't be ultimate. And if he's not ultimate, then he's not God. God didn't need Gideon or his men, but so that he might display his great love for his people and demonstrate to them their need of a deliverer who was like them in every way, he chose Gideon. But knowing Gideon's heart and that of Israel, God took steps to keep his people from the temptation of believing that by their own strength or obedience, goodness, works, or ingenuity, they had somehow delivered themselves. And thus God sifted Israel. And in so doing, he humbled his selected Savior. Now, can you imagine how Gideon must have felt at the head of this army, some 32,000 strong, all primed to follow him into battle because he sounded the ram's horn? I bet as Gideon made his announcement that all of those who were frightened could return home, he I guarantee he expected an almost unanimous affirmation of his leadership and the promise, I'm going to follow you to the death, brother. But no sooner has he made his announcement than two-thirds of his troops took off. You talk about a morale killer. And if that didn't sober the Savior, then God's next sift certainly performed. Because at the end of that reduction, God's left Gideon with 300 dudes. 300 guys going up against an army we're told was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. God humbled Gideon. He led his deliverer to the realization that the only one who can truly save is God. And friends, this is why God sent Jesus. In Christ Jesus, God provided a Savior who was like us in every way, except he never sinned. Jesus didn't commit the sin of pride, but humbly submitted himself to the Father's will, and therefore he is able to face off our adversary and all the armies thereof and set us free from sin and from death. In Gideon, God revealed his people's need of a Savior who, though like them in every way, had to be without sin. God humbled Gideon. Has he humbled you? Has he led you to the realization that you can't save yourself? The army that you lead of some 32,000, whether that's in your bank account or in your talents as you see them, or maybe even on your Facebook page and all the friends that you have or the viral post that you most recently put out there. They can't save you because only God saves. And this is what God reassured Gideon of. As we read the second half there of verse 8, God reassured Gideon. Verse 8, Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley, During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force, the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When God or Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation. He worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Friends, I find this section of the story surprising, revealing, 
and encouraging. And let me explain. I find it surprising because at the conclusion of verse 8 and with God's divinely elected soldiers prepped, you'd expect a battle to ensue, right? And God's dealt with Israel's issue of pride. And so now with only 300 men remaining, all that's left is for God to rout Midian. Only he doesn't, at least not right away. And this is where I find the story revealing, for God directs Gideon to go down to the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. But then, without skipping a beat or even taking a breath, he adds, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged. This further concession of God, I believe, reveals Gideon's persistent lack of personal faith. It's an issue that we've seen evidence throughout the story. Now, at first, I doubt any of us could have faulted Gideon. I mean, the man's hiding in a well, right? He's in fear of the Midianites who've been terrorizing Israel for seven years. Who can blame the guy for doubting the word of a stranger? Especially a word as crazy as you're going to go and save Israel from Midian's hands. But then, after demonstrating his power, Providing Gideon with divine assurance, not once, not twice, but thrice, three times, along with divine assurance and directing him as to how his army is going to be trimmed down. You've got to wonder, at what point, why is Gideon still struggling to believe God? And this is church where I'm encouraged. Because you notice how God doesn't throw up his hands. He doesn't decide to find a new deliverer, one will be less wimpy and more trusting. Instead, he graciously gives Gideon another chance. He graciously allows Gideon to hear the same thing that God has already told him, only this time from the mouth of his enemies. And friends, God's gracious treatment of Gideon so encourages me because I share his weaknesses. I struggle at times to take God at his word. I live more by what my eyes can see than what my heart can believe. And therefore, I, I share the desire of the father in Mark chapter 9, who after hearing Jesus' statement that everything is possible for him who believes, exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. God reassured Gideon. He helped him overcome his unbelief. And friends, he can help you overcome yours. Are you struggling this morning to reconcile what you know of the world around you with the promise of the gospel? Are you dogged by the doubt that for God to be good, then he could never allow such suffering as you see all around you, and then therefore maybe he doesn't even exist? Or, or that if he does exist, well surely then you've got to somehow earn his favor because there is no way that a gift so incredible as eternal life as described to be, could ever be free? Or do you struggle maybe to believe that this book is God's word in which he has all sufficiently revealed himself such that we may know who he is and how we may be in relationship with him? Do you struggle with unbelief this morning? If so, be encouraged. The God who reassured Gideon can reassure you. God empowered Gideon. God assured Gideon, God humbled Gideon, God reassured Gideon, and then God delivered Gideon. Verse 16, we're told, dividing the 300 men into three companies, Gideon placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, 
follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all those who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bechitha, toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Nahola near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beit Barah. And so the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beit Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Church, throughout this interaction, I believe our author makes two things clear. First, who it is that does the delivering. Despite Gideon calling for his men to follow his lead, he insists that they cry what? For the Lord. For the Lord, in recognition of who has gone before them. Then, following the surprise attack, we're told explicitly, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other. And so, first, our author makes clear that God is the deliverer. And then, second, that his deliverance is complete. All of Midian is routed, along with two of their key leaders looting their heads. So, God's victory over his enemies here isn't partial. It's unequivocal. And friends, this is, this is how our God saves. There's no such thing as maybe saved or mostly saved. When you come to know God's great salvation, friend, you will never be the same. And I believe we see this truth revealed in the life of our deliverer. Prior to this battle, Gideon was a reluctant hero, if we can even call him that. But following God's gracious, empowering, assuring, humbling, reassuring. He becomes a new man. Before Gideon hid in a wine press, now he's directing an army to follow his example. Before Gideon hesitated, now he attacks and he plans further attacks in order that God's enemies may be completely destroyed. Gideon is a different person following God's gracious work in his life. What about you? Do you have a story like Gideon's in which you can point back to a time in your life when you were lost, you, your life had no purpose. Maybe you were hiding in the winepress of your home, fearful of the world's intrusion on your life. You, you felt empty. You felt cared for by no one, and you cared for no one but yourself. But then you met Jesus, and you've never been the same. Friends, the truth of the gospel is that once God delivers, you can't remain unchanged. And those who do reveal the truth that they never really experienced the gospel in the first place. Do you have a story of God's great salvation? Or are you still battling with doubt? Because if you are battling with doubt, then I'd encourage you that as we close and as I pray, would you pray with me? Pray with me that the God who called Gideon 
and helped him overcome his unbelief would similarly call you and help you overcome yours. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that we are weak and you are strong. Father, we can't save ourselves. Although this feels right to our human minds, Father, in our natural being, it makes sense to work and therefore merit to have value and to contribute to something so great as salvation. But Father, when we live along these lines, we find ourselves constantly frustrated and discouraged because we fail to be what we would desire to be. We can't be good enough and we can't determine how good is enough. And therefore, we're left anxious, uncertain, fearful. But when we come to realize the beauty and the hope of the gospel is that we don't have to be because you saved us by sending your son, a deliverer like Gideon in that he was holy human like those he saved in every way except unlike Gideon, he was perfect. He submitted himself completely to your will, fulfilling perfectly your law on our behalf, dying in our place and then rising again. And so now, offering to us by grace, hope, life through faith in him. Father, you have determined to save, just as you determined to save your people. Your timing was your timing. Your deliverer was your deliverer. The place of the deliverance you had selected. Father, we pray that today, as you called Gideon, as you led him graciously to trust you, overcoming his unbelief. Father, we pray for any here who have, like Gideon, been battling with doubt, who've heard the gospel, who've even read your word and yet have battled to reconcile truths found therein. God, we pray. Would you graciously call to yourself and overcome that unbelief for only you can save? God, and we ask that you would. Our, our mighty fortress, our bulwark who never fails. God, would you save for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, as we stand, as we conclude our time of worship and commitment, we're going to sing a hymn of